Do you aspire to become a responsible leader? How do you see yourself now as a young man? Learning from challenges is one thing, but getting opportunities is another. If you're a young man who wants to learn about personal growth, life lessons, and leadership, tune in to Essential 11, shaping leaders among leaders. Let's be honest, man. Let's be honest. I was looking at, I was looking, uh, you know, doing a little bit of background getting ready. You are almost to the date, three months older than me, only three months. I looked a good 10 years older than me. I don't know what to do about this. So I'm already starting off angry. That's just the way it's going. (laughs) Doing well. How are you doing? Can you hear me all right? We got you very well, sir. Yeah, absolutely. Hey, thank you. So glad we were able to make this happen, my friend. Oh, no, my pleasure. My pleasure. All about it. This is awesome, man. So I want to make sure you've got context of uh, of kind of what we do and, and what's going on. And then we'll just chat, man. We want to know all about you. And then, you know, you and I will go kind of just conversation style with these young men here. We'll come in and they'll have better questions than, uh, than I will. And we promise not to go over an hour because we honor, honor your time on this. So um, I've gotten the opportunity to build schools. You know, I founded a few in California, but I've built schools and helped entrepreneurs build schools all over the world in a very different kind of school of school that focuses very much on education, not indoctrination. And it's a very different kind of uh, mindset. I think you and I see eye to eye on on so much of that in terms of education. In fact, I know we do. So I had the opportunity to do that was uh, working out and getting beat up by my friend Tim Kennedy a few years back. And he says, well, hey, I want he says, I want to open one of these schools. I'm like, all right, great. Let's get this going. And he goes, hey, what about just pouring into young men too, though, man, I've got a great network of guys. You've got a great network of guys. What if we just get some of the best men in the world and we pour into these young men? And so that's what we get to do every single week is these young men are all over the world here. They're taking on projects and challenges and readings uh, every single month, workouts that we're sending. But every single week, we get to meet with the best of the best, yourself included, uh, and have great conversations, man. So we are literally looking at the future leaders of this country, which is pretty rad. So oh, that's great. It's awesome, man. It's the best. So, um, And we have another uh, connection besides mutual uh, mutual friends, too. You were born in Chico, California. Yeah. I went to Chico State. Oh, you're kidding. <laughs> I went to Chico State. Oh, yeah. That is a man. small world. It is a small world. So you did you oh. grow up out there too? Oh, I did. Yeah. I was born and raised in, in Chico, California. And then Durham, you know, we know it's just kind of oh, right yeah. down the road. Yes. Yeah. My my uh, my wife's parents still live out there. Actually, they live up in paradise. They got caught up with the fire yes. and everything out there. But yeah, yeah. No kidding. Okay. So did you go to Durham yeah. High School? No, I actually went to, um, I, I went to Durham Elementary School, and then I went over to, uh, um, it was Chico Christian, yep. and then there was a small Christian school that got started up called Champion Christian, and I went there, we had a graduating class of 27, um, I always say, like, I, dude, I'll tell you right now, I lucked out big time, because I uh, married, a, married my high school sweetheart, uh, a beautiful Christian woman that was way out of my league. Yeah. But when you only got a graduating class of 27, she didn't have a lot of options, man. That's exactly <laughs> right, man. You played it smart. Oh, that's so cool. Yeah, so I grew up, so I live in the mountains of North Carolina now, and I know I think you're in Virginia, so we're not too, yeah. not all, all that far. But yeah, I grew up in Vacaville, um, so I know okay. you're familiar with it. So I grew up in Vacaville. Oh, yeah, I know Vacaville. But yeah, so it's always a small world, man. Yeah, it's very cool. Very cool. Yeah. Well, I'd love to uh, to kind of what we like to do is like to take our guests, you know, we got the guys on here that are 11, 12, 13, up to 17, 18, 19, and everywhere in between. 
Uh, and I like to kind of go back. We know who you are now, but I like to go back into, hey, you were, you know, this is Nick at 13, 14, 15. And were you were you the guy that had kind of the the quick wit and the high intellect and the conservative drive and the moral drive? Were you that guy or were you far you know, away, somewhere in between? What was that guy like? Well, as you know, my um, I, I have a great relationship with my, both my mom and my dad, but they got divorced when I was three. And so my, my dad lived down in Southern California. He was LAPD. My mom was a nurse. So I would spend the school years with my mom. And then I would spend the summers down there with my dad. Um, and, and that was interesting because obviously that's not ideal, uh, right? But I, I would say the thing that I was, I was blessed about with that is that um, my parents, even though they were divorced, even though they went to different paths and whatnot, they didn't play you know, they, they didn't try to use the kids as leverage against the other parent. Awesome. Uh, they were respectful. And, and I had a, I mean, obviously my mom being a, a nurse, she's, I mean, a nurse and also a missionary. Uh, so she would take us on mission trips. So I remember when I was, when I was 12 or 13, we were doing missionary trips everywhere from Mexico to the Philippines, um, Okinawa. And um, that, that made it a huge impression on me. And then I, I really looked up to my dad, you know, just being a, uh, LAPD. I remember he would, he, him and his partner, partner would take me uh, to work every once in a while, and and that was a crazy experience. Yeah, um, but um, what I would say is, you know, it was probably around 13, 14, I decided I wanted to go to the military. And I always tell people this one of the things, there was two things that kept me out of, out of trouble or out of a lot of trouble. I still got in a little, I mean, there was, <laughs> there may have been the occasional uh, suspension in high school for fighting or, or something like that. But the thing that kept me out of a lot of trouble is I wanted to go to West Point. And uh, me and my buddy were both going to go. And so that, that put a big drive on me to how I had to, you know, focus in on school. I, I had to, you know, again, if you're going to do, if you're going to do something crazy, it better not be too crazy because they're not taking you if you got any sort of record. And, um, I, and I will never forget um, when I got the notice from West Point saying that I hadn't been accepted. And it, and it was, it was the first thing that I had really, um, it, I mean, there's a lot of things I had worked toward in like sports and, 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 um, you know, just other projects and stuff that we had done out on the mission field and things like that. Uh, there's a lot of things that I had worked for, um, you know, trying to make a team or, or trying to get a particular grade or trying to pass something. That was the first thing that was the first like major goal I had set up in my life where I didn't, I didn't make it and brother, I didn't even get that close. Yeah, uh, but there was still this idea that you know, I'm, I'm, as I'm waiting for the letter, I'm like, all right, maybe you know, okay, I know I didn't do as, as well in math that I should have, but my ACT scores were okay. But then I got all the, I got these extracurriculars. Maybe that's going to be enough. And when I opened up that letter and it was, hey, you haven't been accepted. Um, I really didn't have a plan B. Yeah, um, or, or at least one that I really thought about, other than I was going in the military. So the the next step was, all right, I, I'm still going to join. And uh, two weeks later at a high school, uh, and I turned 18 my senior year, but two weeks at a high school, I was on that, uh, I was on that plane and then that bus to beautiful Fort Benning, Georgia, wow. <laughs> basic training. But yeah, so thir 13, 14, I, I, again, I, I would get in trouble. I was, I was definitely a bit of a smart aleck. That would be a polite way to put it. Um, <laughs> I think some of my teachers had a different way to put it under their breath when no one could hear, but um but yeah, a combination of being grounded in, in uh, like my faith, yeah. um, certainly not always living it out the way I should, but, but 
the, you know, a, a moral foundation, foundation combined with a combined with an objective yeah. um, was really formative for me through through that through that time. Uh, yeah. But yeah, yeah, get it. <laughs> but but failing right off the bat was an interesting experience. But that's I look back now, I look back now, and I I want to have it any other way. But, so yeah, that's and I and I mean and that's that's the nature of the beast, right? We look back and we're able to connect. You know, we're able to connect the dots backwards, obviously, and and um, and not forward to be a whole different game if we could do that. So I I love that. But at the, in the time, man, that is for a young guy. That's a kick in the junk. I mean, that is a tough. That's a tough deal. So I kind of a two part question on that. So one, what was it about the military in general that made it so that that was your objective like when you decided at 13 14 i'm going into the military like what was it about the military that was drawing you in and two do you credit that that kind of foundation that moral faith that um you know your, your parents obviously pouring into you your experiences as a missionary like you credit that with your resilience to go okay well i didn't get in here but i'm still going to go in because i that in of itself, that resilient nature right there, you know, there's a lot of talk about generations and generational habits. I've spoken on stages to darn near half a million people across this globe about generations in particular, because what yeah. a lot of companies are telling me are these young people, they're coming in and they're expecting, they're like, hey, you know, Mr. Nick, um, I've been here six weeks, man, uh, you know, almost <laughs> every day, you know, yeah. Uh, which is, which is incredible, right? Which is nuts. The, the biggest thing that, uh, I, and I, I always tell people this, the, the older I get, and I, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm 43 now, I got three kids, my oldest is 20. The older I get, the more I appreciate that my parents raised me with this idea that the world doesn't owe you anything. Yes. And so when I got that letter from West Point saying you didn't get in, my it didn't it never occurred to me that somehow I had been guilty of some sort of cosmic injustice, yeah. right? It was no, I didn't put in the sufficient work, and if you don't want to feel like this in the future, you better put in the work. Yes, and and it was that that mindset. It almost seemed when you hear like the world doesn't owe you anything, it almost seems negative. It's not. It's not. It's just a proper understanding of reality, right. and, and the the more you try to the more you try to accomplish things in this life with an improper understanding of reality, the more you are going to be banging your frigging head against the wall, wondering why stuff isn't working. And it becomes really easy for somebody to convince you that it's because you're a victim. Mm -hmm. And so when you have a mentality that, okay, I tried for this, I didn't do it right. And your first question is, okay, what did I do wrong? What could I have done better? Your, your mindset is different. It's like, okay, I'm going to learn from this. All right. I couldn't, I couldn't get into that. And, and the other thing, too, is I always believe I was always raised like I'm, I'm a dedicated Christian. I believe God has a plan. So this was my plan. Apparently it wasn't God's. All right. What's next? Well, I'm going to I'm going to go in, I'm going to go into the infantry and I want to be airborne. So I'm going to go to the 82nd Airborne Division. And then after that, I was like, OK, I want to I want to go to sniper school. I want to go to ranger school. And then 9-11 happened. It's like, OK, I'm, I'm, I'm watching what Army Special Forces is doing, what Green Berets are doing over in Afghanistan. I'm like, oh, my gosh, that's like. The, the pinnacle like I wanted and, and there was there was this drive too because my dad again he's a hom he was a homicide defect detective right yeah. manly man my grandfather had my grandfather actually um told his father during World War II my grandfather was 16 told his father during World War II if you don't take me down and sign the paperwork for me to join the Navy I'm going to run away from home they will make me a ward of the government and then they'll send me in the Navy anyways 
right? So the, I, I, I did have men in my life that I wanted to live up to. And one of those, those baseline expectations for being a man was this idea of a man protects the things he loves. Mm. A man defends the things he loves. And so uh, the military provided me an opportunity to be able to test myself, to be able to develop skill sets, and to do so in an environment where, again, nobody was treating you like you deserve to be here, or you deserve the next rank, or you deserve your ranger tab. It was just the opposite. That's right. Um, I think a lot of people don't understand that when you're, I mean, Matt, you know this, when you're, when you're going through these, these schools, like especially these high-intensive schools, it's not like the instructors are out there like, hey, man, come on, you can do it, push through. You will be sitting there cold, hungry, tired, and they'll walk over and be like, hey, man, this isn't for everybody. You, yep. know, you can get you a blanket, hot cup of coffee, Obviously. man. You, know, you got nothing to, nothing to prove. You can leave right now. It's okay. Right. And you've got to make up in your mind, like, no, 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 I'm not going home. I am not going home with what I, I'm not going home without what I came here to get. Yes. And, and I, I love the fact that as, as much as at the time that was, you know, difficult and, and there was definitely times where I just wanted to be like, forget this. Um, then you, you know, you go forward and now you're in combat and you realize that all of those little those little habits, those, those exercises, that training, those things that you went through that taught you not only how to react, but also taught you that, um, I'll, I'll never forget this. My, my dad was telling me a story once of a, he was, he was part of an officer involved shooting team where they actually had to investigate officers that were, you know, got in gunfights. And this, this officer who had gotten a gunfight, who had actually saved his partner's life and gotten hit, got shot in the process. He left cover to go get his, his, partner and pull him back to cover and that guy's chain of command was trying to throw him under the bus man this chain of command was trying to, to try to bury him saying he didn't do this tactically sound he didn't do this right he didn't do that right and the review board got done and they they looked at the commanding officer and they said not only did we not find that your officer did nothing wrong but we're very interested to know what award for valor you plan to put him in for Mm. and my dad's telling me this story and he goes nick we were standing on the elevator and this captain this commanding officer that he keeps saying like you know hey you don't think he did this wrong? You know, the thing right? And he's like, no, we don't. We're the ones they call for stuff like this. Mm -hmm. And that always stuck with me. That whole idea that when you, when you get into these situations, you are the one they call. There, there, is, no, there is no point where you're picking up the phone and calling someone else. You're it. Yep. And when you, and, and all that training that you go through, and then it's, it's not just the training. Because the training teaches you what to, how to react to the situation the way you're supposed to react. It's also about having the moral conviction that it is your responsibility. Mm. And that's a choice. Mm. A lot of people yes. think that's something that, that gets trained into you. That, that's something that just happens. That, nope, it's a choice. Right. You choose that when I'm faced with this situation, this is how I'm going to behave. And then you train and develop yourself in such a way that when it does happen, you, re you behave the way that you're supposed to. That's exactly right. Gosh, we were just we were just talking before you came on about the journey of a couple of these young men here, and we we're talking about Tim and I always tell them it's fire aim ready for you guys. You're gonna make the you're gonna make the choice to move forward. You're gonna make the decision. You're gonna step forward, and then you're gonna allow that to go. Okay, um, let's see. Uh, I think this is the door now that I need to go. You're gonna illuminate the path a little bit. You ultimately get to ready, which means you just have a bigger mountain to climb, and you're gonna keep keep going. What doesn't change is the core value, right? The core characteristic. 
that right there is what you train into you so that that is always and forever that foundation. And then what you're doing is as you're making these decisions, I'm writing down all these things you're saying, you decide that that personal responsibility is something that you are going to have now and in the future. It, it becomes a habit. That becomes a habit. Taking on that personal responsibility, that ownership becomes a habit. And that's exactly what you're talking about building. And that just translates into everything else you do. It's just the way it goes. I love that, man. We've got uh, 11 rules written in our house. Um, it's our it's the Bodro family rules. I got three kids as well, and and we got the uh, the rules framed up there, man. And one of the one of the rules in our house is you are personally responsible, and that's exactly what we're talking about. Is you have to get into the habit of that. I love that, man. So that obviously took you into not just through the military, but then you go into you know you go into politics, which is a whole different <laughs> right. And then the whole concept yeah. of personal responsibility seems to be lost on so many politicians. Right. But you carried that through. So let's talk about I'd like to talk about that, uh, that kind of political um, journey a little bit for you, too. And I know you're you're a fan of many men that I am as well. Thomas Sowell. Um, being oh, yeah. And, and uh, when I was just out at Tim's house a couple of weeks ago, we were reading uh, Bastiat. Bastier. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Frederick Bastiat. Yes, Bastiat. We were, yes, yeah. we were reading him, and I know you're a fan as well. Um, so I'd love to talk about that journey uh, a little bit as well. And then I want to talk a little bit about how all of that translates to you now as a dad, too, um, because that's so dang important. But yeah, give us a little bit of background on, on post-military life and what that looked like for you. Sure. Well, I got out of the military, and I was still doing work kind of in the defense sector, but I, I got uh, more involved kind of locally in Virginia with, with uh, politics. My mom had been involved when I was growing up. And so I had a grounding and I was always interested in political philosophy um, and, and the idea of what is the proper relationship uh, between government and citizens within a free society. And so that, that got me interested in concepts like, you know, uh, constitutional government, uh, limited government, enumerated powers, uh, and then on the economic side, things like free market economics versus, you know, other economic systems, Marxism, socialism, et cetera. And um, the other thing, too, that kind of changed for me is like I, I never um, like to this day, I'm, I'm always very, very proud of the service that, you know, uh, you know, my friends rendered in, in Iraq and things like that. But I will say that my service in Iraq started to make me very, very skeptical of the way that our government was. Mm -hmm. I, violating what I think was its constitutional responsibilities with respect to going to war. You know, we're, we're not voting on going to war. We're just going, right? We're allowed in mm -hmm. war. So all of that was, was kind of instrumental and it caused me to read a lot more. And some of the people you mentioned, Frederick Bastiat, The Law, I think is one of the best books on political theory I've ever read. Uh, anything by Thomas Sowell. Thomas Sowell is just a genius. But so as I started to kind of develop like what, what is, okay, what is my core philosophy with respect to, you know, like the first philosophy is man to, man to God, right? Yep. That that's, has to be the core fundamental uh, for your worldview because it, it provides the, the epistemological justification for objective morality and everything else. And then like man to government, what, what's that relationship supposed to look like? And so I got involved and uh, I, I got asked if I'd run for office and I said, no. Uh, first really? time I, I was asked, yeah, first time I was asked, I said, no. And then the second time, because uh, Tina, my wife at first, she wasn't too sure about whether or not she wanted me in elected office. Yeah. Because um, it, it is a different world. And it's funny to this day when people ask me what best prepared you for being in, in politics, I said, well, 
in the military, I specialize in unconventional warfare and counterinsurgency. And it's that's amazing right. how that prepares you for domestic violence. That's right. That's exactly right. But, um, exactly. but yeah, I ran, ran for office for the Virginia House of Delegates, uh, got elected there. I've been there seven years. In fact, I, in a, two weeks, I'll be going into my eighth session. Um, and and it's, it's, it's cool. And, I, and I've run for some other stuff. I, I ran for Congress, kind of had a heartbreaking race. We lost by less than two points. <laughs> um, and uh, but I, I represent James Madison's district in the Virginia House of Delegates, which is a, you know, over 400 year old uh, continuous elective body. So that, that part's pretty neat. Um, but I also I, I find myself oftentimes kind of isolated in that environment. Like even right now, my my party is in the majority. That doesn't mean my political philosophy yeah. is in the majority. And so you, you find yourself a lot of times not only running up against kind of the people that you know have an opposing worldview, yeah. you find yourself arguing and debating with a lot of people on your own side, especially if you take a very, very, you know, limited role for government approach that, that I do. A lot of times that you'll see the left wants to do this and the right says, no, we should do this. And I'm sitting here going, I don't think the government should be doing that. You're <laughs> touching that whole thing. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. Shouldn't be touching it. Um, but it, it, it has been an interesting experience. You, you learn a lot about um, you learn a lot about being able to publicly articulate your mm. viewpoints in, in a hostile environment. Mm. And um, I, I think that goes along if you if you really take it seriously, it goes a long way to helping you be um, intellectually rigorous. Yes, sir. And and then being able to articulate it in such a way to where, where you can make a good argument, but you can do it in a way that people will understand it, will connect with them. One of, one of the big problems that I see in certain circles is we're really good at making these academic arguments that don't resonate with anyone. Right. And so focusing a lot on trying to understand um, how what you're saying or what you're proposing is going to affect someone on a personal level yeah. is critical. And, and I would say that one of the things that's really the, the skill set for that I've really come to find is um, even more important with respect to being a father. Mm. Um, mm. One, one of the things that I think um, I, I actually spoke about this at my church. I said, we have a lot of parents um, that, you know, have a Christian worldview, maybe have something more of a, of a conservative outlook on life. Um, sending their kids off to college and when their kids come home and challenge them, their attitude is to get defensive and aggressive yes, sir. Uh, with their kid. They would almost treat their kid like they're, they're wrong for asking these questions. Mm -hmm. And I said, when you do that, you're actually, you're actually advancing the sort of authoritarian model that you think sure. you'd raise your kids away from. Because if, if all you did was teach your kids that you believe what mommy and daddy believe because we put a roof over your head, you believe what we believe because we're the authority figure in your life. Okay, well, that's great until you're not the authority figure anymore. Bingo. Right? And now they'll look for something else. If you never taught your kids, not just you know, your values, but, but how to think about them and why they're important, then, then you really haven't prepared them. And then the, the second thing that I found, and this was humbling. Dude, you want to talk about a humbling moment. I'll never forget when my oldest daughter, uh, she's 20 now. Um, at the time, I think she was... 14 or 15 and she knocks on my door and she goes, daddy, can I talk to you for a second? And I said, yes, we are. What is it? I'd had a long day. I was, I was, I was kind of done. And she goes, daddy, I don't think you handled something very well. Mm. 
Every bit of me wanted to be like, oh, you don't. Oh, well, you're going to yeah. enlighten me on parenting. By, by all means, please have a seat. Like that, this this is going sure. on in my mind, and I'm about ready to say it. And then I'm like, I should probably ask her what it's about. So I said, because she did. She, she was polite. She was respectful. She, came, she, goes, she goes, Daddy, when you got home from work, you went into the kitchen. The kitchen was a mess. You got mad at Allie and Luke. And then you stormed out of the room. And Allie and Luke don't want to come up and tell you that the reason why they were in the kitchen was because mommy gave them permission because they were making something for you. And I felt like a jerk. And rightfully so. And rightfully so. And the thing that, and, and, and I, this is one of those things where they're by the grace of God, because there's a thousand different ways I could have handled it. And there's a thousand different ways I have handled stuff like that before in the yeah. past. But in that moment, in that moment, I remember thinking to myself, we have taught our children that there is a certain moral standard that goes beyond just me being their father or Tina being their mother. There's a certain moral standard. There's right and wrong. There is such a thing as truth. Mm-hmm. And right now, everything that we've taught her about truth tells her that what I did in there was wrong. Mm -hmm. And now she's had the courage to come to somebody that she loves, respects, and also recognizes that she is under my authority. She's had the courage to come to me in a respectful manner and tell me what's wrong. If I don't reward that with the right response right now, what I've taught her is that none of what I've taught her in the past matters. It's all about authority. That's right. And, and again, thank God that in that moment, my response was, because there's been other moments where this has not been my response, yep. but in that moment, my response was, sweetheart, you're right. I'm wrong. I'll go apologize to, to Luke and Allie. And thank you. Thank you for letting me know. Thank you for letting me know. Yeah. And, and, I, and one of the big things that I, I try to really impress on parents now is that, um, if you want to be able to, if you want to grow kids that are strong in their faith and their belief system and what they believe and why they believe it, um, that really starts with how you project that to your kids. Sure. And, and so learning how to understand it and talk about it and have those discussions and to let them ask probing questions that might be uncomfortable with, for you at times. Sure. Um, that's absolutely critical for that development. And if you don't do that, there's, there's, you're going to find friction, not only in your relationship, but you don't have any right to be surprised when all of a sudden they find themselves in a different situation where it isn't your values. And instead of questioning it, they just went with whatever the authority figure said. That's exactly right. Gosh, man, no, that is, it's, it's so good. And, And I think a lot of times as, as parents, because, you know, if you're, you're in the school business at this point and opening, especially schools that don't look like conveyor belt schools in a, from a traditional model, when you're in that business, you're also in the business of, of walking parents out of that cult mentality of conveyor belt schooling, right? So I'm definitely in the business yeah. of both. and talking to parents, you know, over and over, it's, uh, it's exactly what you said. And then a lot of times we have to also be okay um, taking the role of asking good questions to allow them the opportunity to think without jumping in and again, resuming that authority figure, we have to trust that we've done a good job foundationally too, that if we ask them a tough question, we can actually step back, let them sit on it a little bit, and then they'll come to the right conclusion and own it. But what do we, and I'm with you, man, I'll jump right in and just be like, and by the way, your answer is going to be this, because I say this is going to be your answer, you know, and it's like, Gosh, man, we want to set them up truly for that, you know, for those opportunities. So when they go off to college, they're not able to, they're able to take the good. They're able to see the ridiculous for what it is. They can argue intellectually, but civilly, 
right? They understand what civil discourse looks like. And more importantly, like you said, they gravitate towards truth. They can see the things that are crazy and they can just acknowledge it for the crazy that it is and not let it emotionally affect them or worse, drag them into it, you know? And yeah. that's the whole thing. I mean, we did, um, did a movie with Dennis Prager a couple of years ago called No Safe Spaces. And it's yeah, about- yeah. So, and so, you know, talking about everything going on with college. And so we went and did a couple of events and myself and um, Dave Rubin did a few together and we were having some events specifically around civil discourse and what that looks like. And we had young people coming in and showing what this looked like. And it, it was amazing to me. We would go to these Christian, sometimes Christian universities. We'd show the film. We would have these talks. We would invite guests. And it was amazing to me. A lot of times it was the parents who were pushing back going, yeah, but you want the civil discourse. But really, you know, what we should be doing is hammering into this. And we're, we were making the exact same argument. We're going, man, aren't we just setting them up for failure in that way if we do that? You know, so dang hard, man. Oh, so good. Um, gentlemen, here's what I want to do. I want you guys to put your hands up if you don't mind, because I want you guys to be able to ask questions too. I'm going to uh, call on you because we're going to honor his time. We got 26 minutes left. Um, but I, I want to, so the, the, the 20 year old that you have right now, is she in college? Or are you encouraging? Cause she go to college? What is that situation? She, um, we were fine if she wanted to, to go to college. Um, yeah. she graduated high school. We homeschool. She graduated high school. Uh, right as COVID hit. So there was really not, and, and she also said, she goes, dad, she goes, I thought about the military. I thought about some other things. She really loves theater. She, she's actually looked at some, I uh, think over at sight and sound theater in um, Pennsylvania. They have another one in Missouri. It's this really just incredible theater that there. And she goes, but dad, I understand that it's really hard to make a living on a theater. So she goes, here's what I want to do. She goes, I want to go to Paul Mitchell cosmetology school because yep. it's going to give me a useful skill set that I can take anywhere Yep. And it also puts her in the proximity of the theater. So there's, there's multiple entry points that she can use at this, at a, at a young age. I mean, this is a great age to take risks, right? Yes. But she has a useful skill set that she can sustain herself on and make money no matter where she goes. And it puts her in the proximity of what she wants to do. And so she's, she's really embraced that and done well with it. And uh, so we'll see what happens. I honestly, I, I think, uh, I think there's a good shot. She might be married uh, <laughs> pretty soon, which yeah. is a great thing. I, I love her. Uh, her boyfriend is a, a great guy. They, they're both, uh, they've known each other for about 10 years, but they've only been dating for about two now, but they, um, they kind of grew up in the church together. And, and cool. there. But yeah, so we'll cool. see, but that's, oh, that's awesome. Yeah. That's awesome, man. Yeah. No, since we moved out here, cause we were in, we were still in California um, up until February of this year. Um, we were in, my wife and I were in the Bay for a while. And when we were at Stanford and we were at, um, we were in Sacramento building schools out there. We're in the mountains yeah. now since February. And so we're home, we're homeschooling, home educating here. And I have families that I home educate from across the world that, um, that we help yeah. out. So I love that. And I love that trajectory. I think that is a smarter route for oh, we, we need to talk more about that because I'm on the education committee in Virginia. And one of the big things that we're trying to push is more opportunities outside of the government administered system. And oh. what you're talking about is right what we want. Oh, man, I know the game inside and out, whatever I can do to help on that. I mean, please say the word because that is the way to go. And I love to hear that from her, too. And, and it's not that college has to be a, uh, a bad thing. Um, but I will tell you, I do think it's a net negative now for more young people than it is a net positive. You know, I, I really do. And it's a tough battle to have to navigate. So I love hearing that for your young lady, too. It doesn't surprise me. And I, I think that's freaking phenomenal. All right, let's get some of these handsome gentlemen in here. Mr. Steinbach, you are up, sir. Thank you so much for coming on the call today, Mr. Freitos. Am I, am I saying that correctly? 
Uh, Freitas, but my drill sergeant taught me to Freitas? respond to anything close. Yeah, you're good. <laughs> <laughs> understood. So I, I try and anytime I get the opportunity to interact with someone coming out of the, the USASOC community or the SOCOM community, I, I always want to ask them, if you were 17, 18 years old today, would you still join that military uh, the, the way it is now? I mean, outside of the poison injections and everything else, right, taking into account the military industrial complex and, you know, the, the administration that you're serving under, which certainly doesn't have your best interests in mind, certainly doesn't have, you know, the, the oath that you take of serving and protecting the Constitution against enemies foreign and domestic in mind, would you still join that military? I guess is the juice worth the squeeze? Um, yeah, I, I would. Um, now, again, there, there could come a time where I, I might change the way I feel about that statement. I think some of it really depends on what your what your objectives are for your life, what, um, you know, where you think, what do you think God's plan is for you? Um, but I, I will say that I, I had an incredible experience. I served I came in during the Clinton administration um, and then served through Bush and then was still there when, when Obama took office. Um, the, the things that I remember and love about my military service um, are the people I met, the skills, the, the situations, the testing that it really puts you in. And, and even, it's, even now where I'll look back on, on our, our policy in Iraq and think, now I've I really started to question um, the, the intelligence that got us there in the first place and whatnot. But I'll tell you what I've never had to question. I've never had to question the good things that we actually did on the ground for the people that we were working with. And so I still think it is a it is an absolutely worthwhile endeavor. I think the the skills that you will learn, the friendships that you will build, uh, will will be with you throughout your life. Um, so yeah, I, it, it's something. If it were me, I would still do it, but I will be careful on how I advise other people because of what's going on right now. But yeah, good question. Thank you, sir. Good question, Mr. Duncan. Go ahead, sir. All right. Thank you, sir, for being here. That was actually uh, part of my question. So I guess I'll have to switch it up a little bit. Um, so what are your thoughts on going active duty versus reserves? And then also a completely separate um, thing. What was your job in the military? So I, I started off. Uh, so I was enlisted. I started off as infantry uh, in the 82nd Airborne Division, then the 25th Infantry. And then I went over to Army Special Forces, kind of better known as Green Berets. I was a weapons sergeant, then I was an intel sergeant. I, I will tell you this much. If I had to do it all over again, I would probably just go straight to SF if they're still doing the x-ray program, which we, we call it the, the SF baby program. Uh, but they, they, had a, they had a mechanism where you could go right into SF. And the reason why I say that also has to do with the previous question is um, <clears throat> as ridiculous as things can get in the military, you have a lot more control over your individual destiny in SF than you do if you're in a line infantry unit, um, there was a, a, a great deal more power that we had with respect to the decision-making process on what operations we were going to go on, how we were going to conduct them. We were very involved in all of our planning processes. And that's not the same throughout you know, every unit within the military. That really is, in many ways, very unique to special operations. And I would say special forces. Mm -hmm. um, so I... I I still like the idea of active duty. Uh, reserve is, I, I mean, it, there's, there's, great, um, there, there's great opportunities within the Guard and Reserve. A lot of it depends on what you want to do. Um, one thing I tell people, I, I was talking to a young man that was, um, he was really trying to get a job within the cyber world. 
and he had a degree in cybersecurity and he managed to get a job and it took a long time. And one of the things I floated to him was you might consider going into the guard because it will help you go through that process of getting your security clearance. It gives you some actual experience. There's credentialing involved with that. And so um, I think it really depends on what you want to do with respect to active or reserve. And then the other thing I would say is that um, unless you want to go into a very, very technical field, if you're, if you're looking at going more of like the infantry or the combat arms route, um, my attitude is <laughs> the, the quicker you can get to special operations, probably the, the happier you're going to be because it's very demanding. But, but having that additional kind of control over how you conduct operations and knowing that you're, you're in there with a lot of other people that desperately want to be there. There's no one that shows up in SF accidentally. Right? You got to go through you know, a year, year and a half of training. So uh, I think that's all beneficial. Um, and if I could add another another piece of that, um, what I guess they're called units. I don't remember all the terminology, but um, did you go to multiple units or were you just um, at whatever one was in? I think North Carolina is 82nd or Georgia. Oh, yeah. So, um, yeah, there, there's different. So it, it just kind of depends. So like within a division, you have brigades, you have battalions, you have companies, you have platoons, you have squads, you have teams, right? Like the team's the lowest. Um, so when I was in the 82nd Airborne Division, I was in what you call a line company, which is just a straight, you know, paratrooper line company. Then I went over to the scout platoon that focuses a little bit more on reconnaissance. When I went out to the 25th Infantry Division, that was a light infantry division. So no jumping out of planes, but I was in a, a standard line company there. Uh, but yeah, you're, you're, and then when you get into SF, the basic functional unit is what they call the A team or the ODA. Um, and that's your 12 man team. That, that's what goes out and conducts the vast majority of operations. There's elements within special forces where you might do company level operations. A lot of that is around what they called, what they used to call the SIP, the Commanders and Extremist Force. That was uh, things like hostage rescue, um, uh, things of that nature. Um, but so yeah, you, you can definitely go with different units, but um, when, you're, when you're starting off, especially enlisted, the, the lowest unit you're going to be a member of is going to be a team within a squad, within a platoon, within a company, within a battalion, within a brigade, within a division, within a corps, within the area, you know, all that stuff. Cool. Thank you, sir. I actually, um, I live in Tennessee by Fort Campbell and like I train okay. jujitsu and my jujitsu instructor is retired Green Beret and all the dudes there are all Green Berets. Um, but I never really Probably piqued my fifth interest. Group guy. So yes, yes, sir. Yeah. Good deal. Very cool. Good question, sir. All right. Caleb up in Canada. Yes, sir. So much for coming on, sir. So my question is, what was the breaking point, if any, that caused you to speak up and say what you think, knowing the possible repercussions? And I'm saying this with context to that one clip of you in Parliament, I would imagine, where you were talking about them labeling you as a sexist, a bigot, a racist. Oh, when you speak up yeah. well so the, the yeah that, that was a floor speech that happened last year that kind of went viral um there, there was actually one that took place about i guess four year two years before that that's where really kind of um that that's where i think i saw what the dynamic really was when i first went in the general assembly you're brand new right nobody really knows you and so you, you have this ability to kind of get along talk with everybody you know both sides of the aisle there, there was a certain degree of camaraderie there and then um, we, we had uh, the Parkland shooting took place. Mm. And, uh, and I was sitting on the gun committee, right? The, what we call the gun sub. And now that's the subcommittee I chair. It's now my, my subcommittee. But at the time, I, I kept 
hearing people compare those of us who really valued the Second Amendment and the reason why it exists, comparing us to Nazis, comparing us to segregationists, caring about us, all these things. And so <clears throat> I got up and I gave a seven minute speech and I laid out all the reasons why we think the Second Amendment is important. And, and lo and behold, it's not so much about guns as it is your individual right to be able to provide for your own defense and provide for the defense of your country. And I, and I said that, it, you know, it's, it's a little bit difficult to have civil discourse with somebody when they're constantly accusing you of the most horrible or atrocious things or making those sorts of associations. And the thing that really got them mad was I said, I said, let me make this clear. I said, I don't like being compared to segregationists because it wasn't my party that supported slavery. It wasn't my party that fought against women's suffrage. It wasn't my party that locked up Asian Americans in concentration camps during World War II. It wasn't my party that supported Jim Crow. It wasn't my party that supported mass resistance. It wasn't my party that supported segregation. That was your party. And I, I even cabin, I said, now I know that none of you on the other side of the aisle still believe in any of those things. I said, but it's pretty frustrating when you are constantly projecting the sins of your party onto me whenever you want to make a point. That caused four of my colleagues to get up and leave the floor in tears. It caused the other caucus to take a 15-minute recess. And then for the next three days, I was called a racist and a bigot because I said those things. Now, you fast forward, and, and I learned really quick that it's like, oh, oh, okay, you can call me a Nazi because I believe in the Second Amendment. You can call me a segregationist, which is it's amazing, too, because if you look at the whole history of gun control laws, so much of gun control laws in the South were all based around the idea of not wanting Black people to be able to defend themselves. Mm -hmm. But you can, you can say those things to me, and I'm supposed to sit here and take it because you're a well-meaning, compassionate individual. But if I get up and I point out accurate historical facts, all of a sudden, your offense is all that's needed in order to accuse me of any number of things. And I'm not putting up with that crap anymore. If, if, if that's the way you wanna play this game, I know how to play it. Mm -hmm. I'd much prefer to have a nice civil discourse to talk about policy, the positives, the negatives, the cost benefit analysis. I'd like to point out what Thomas Sowell always says that here in government, we don't deal in solutions, we deal in trade-offs. Mm -hmm. But if you wanna make this, if you wanna make this emotionally charged argument against me and engage in nothing but ad hominem attack, because you don't have a good argument, well, Haas, buckle up, because I'm not putting up with that. And we had a similar thing happen two years later. And that's why I said, you know, I had a colleague of mine ask me if I was going to be nice this year. I would certainly like to be, but I'm not going to sit here and have someone challenge my integrity, my honesty, my faith, my compassion, because I disagree with you on tax policy. That's right. Because at the end of the day, that's not an effort to foster civil debate. That is an attempt to shut down debate because they understand they can't debate the individual merits of a particular position. Bingo. And, and, and what I saw was that this overwhelming drive within on, on our side to, to not try to rock the boat because, oh, well, the, the press won't like it. Uh, and, and, you know, we never win these things because the way it gets reported in the press always works out against us. I'm like, fine, go around the press. Because when I gave that speech, there was people on my own side of the aisle that were upset with me until it got 100 million views. And then they realized, like, I don't need the press. I can go straight to the people and I can make the argument. And guess what? They'll back it if you're willing to stand up and actually have some guts and call them out. Because I got news for you. 
when they call us those things, it's not just directed at us. It's directed at the people we represent. And they have a right to know that when we come down here and they're being called those things, mm-hmm. that we're going to stand up and not just defend us. We're going to defend them. We're going to defend the values that we claim to care about, and we're going to do so in a way that's intellectually rigorous and articulate. And so I I just, it it wasn't the first time certain individuals have gotten up and and done that. And and look, to be perfectly fair, there there are people on the other side of the aisle that that I I can work with just fine. We disagree 95% of the time, but the 5%, the reason why we can work together on the other 5% is because they're intellectually honest. And because they keep their word and I can work with somebody that I disagree with 95% of the time who keeps their word more than I can work with someone that agrees with me 70% of the time. Who's a liar. Yes. Cause you could still trust so, that person. That's right. You can still trust. That's that. right. That's we lose yeah. that. We forget that you can still trust, even though you don't agree, you can still yep. trust because you can believe because they're at least maintaining that integrity and, and they're yep. aligned with what they say and they, what they do. So you can at least trust that. And there's a level of respect that goes along with that. Yeah. By the way, I really hope Pierre wins in Canada. I love that. Guy. Uh, yeah. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. What do you think, Caleb? Thank you for your answer, sir. And my follow-up to that is what gave you the courage to stand up knowing that the majority is going to be against your thoughts, even the people on your side, like you said. I was pissed. <laughs> I'm sorry. That's, 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 a, that's a crude way to put it. That's a crude way to put it, but I, I was mad. And, and this, is, this is one of the things, too, that I think is important um, for men to understand. Part of, part of preparing yourself for standing up in situations where it's either dangerous, and that danger might be physical danger, it might be um, danger with respect to your career, um, social danger. Part of preparing yourself for doing that, it, it's not about hating the thing that you're speaking up against. It's about absolutely being in love with the thing that you're defending. Mm. Um, I, I will tell you right now, um, mm. there, there is nothing you can tempt me with and there is nothing you can threaten me to get me to back down about the things that I love the most. So I, I, love, I love my God. I love my family. Um, and so threats to those things, and, and, and I do love, I love truth. And so threats to those things make me angry. And so I'm, I'm going to step up now. I, I will say this, you got to be careful with that. You got to get that under control because it can real, it can be really tempting to allow righteous indignation and anger turn into something that it shouldn't be. Mm-hmm. Um, you still have to keep it under control, but man, it should be there. Mm-hmm. It should be there. I, I, you know, I saw somebody put this in a meme once and they said, the next time someone asks you, what would Jesus do? Remind him that running through the temple, flipping over tables and kicking people out was a possibility. That's right. That <laughs> was on the table. It, yeah. It, it's like, like righteous, righteous indignation, righteous anger is appropriate if it's truly righteous, but then the response that you give must also be righteous. Mm-hmm. Uh, the moment you allow it to become something else, you actually pervert it. That's right. Um, but, th- but that's what it was. Like I, it, this isn't, this isn't some, I'm, I'm not, I'm not sitting here claiming to manifest some sort of special or unique courage. It isn't, it isn't special or unique courage. Um, it, it's just, it's just a decision that if this is correct and if the, if the things and the people I love are being slandered, maligned or threatened, then I'm going to stand up and defend them because that's, that's my role. That's my responsibility. God created men to play that role. And when we don't play it, you see what happens to society and civilization at large. Ah, oh, so good. What do you think, Caleb? 
Thank you so much, sir. Beautiful. Oh, so good, man. Yeah, I'm taking uh, taking a lot of notes. In and I love that perspective. You don't have to, you do not have to hate what it is you're against, especially when you love what you are for so freaking much. It's a very clear thing and nothing. And, and it resonates uh, that I think that resonates with all men. It especially resonates with fathers. It, it especially resonates with people who know who God is. It especially resonates, I think, because there, there are uh, uh, levels of love there that you just don't understand any other way. And it just makes it very, very easy and very clear to see that. Oh, I love that. All right, gentlemen, last, last two. Parker, go ahead, sir. Thank you, sir, so much for coming on here. Um, my notes are currently full of wisdom that you've given. And my question for you is, I have two questions. First being what skill has helped you most in becoming the man you are today? And the second being what has been your most influential mistake? What mistake has, you know, had the greatest effect on you, whether it be what you learned from it or how it affected your life. I'll start off with the second one. Um, We, because my wife and I were just talking about this the other day. So my oldest daughter is, is 20 now, but I will never forget when she was three years old and we had not been like, I, I had not been active in my faith. Um, and we were tying and some, our neighbor and, and some neighbors of mine, people I really, really respected Anthony and Janelle, they invited us to go to church and look, I'm in the military. I got to wake up at, you know, five in the morning to go run five miles the next day. Like, I don't, I don't feel like, and Tina and I are talking about, Hey, we know it's good. You know, we should probably, and my, my three-year-old daughter goes, what's church. And at that moment, it kind of hit me that for the first seven years of my marriage, I had not been playing the role of the spiritual leader of my household. And that if I didn't correct that real quick, there were going to be consequences to that, that I was going to have to live with for the rest of my life. Mm. So that, that mistake right there, a long mistake too, seven years of, of not really embracing that role. Um, that, that was the biggest mistake that, and, and it was a combination of Anthony stepping up. And it was also a combination of another guy. I wish I could remember his name, but I was in the special forces intelligence sergeants course. And this guy was just bold in his faith. He didn't mind standing up and, and defending it. And he did so articulate. He did so in an articulate fashion. He did so in an intellectually rigorous fashion. And, um, and what, what, it, what I appreciated was the boldness of it and the fact that both of those men were men that I respected as men. Mm. I respected them as men before anything else. I didn't know a lot of other things about them before that. But for me, that was, that was really important. And so um, that, whole, that whole aspect, I think, was, that was my biggest mistake that, that led to something that was formative afterwards. What was the first question again? Thank you. My first question was, what skill has helped you most in, the, in becoming the man you are today? Um, I, I think, gosh, that's, that's a tough one. It, 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 um, uh, I, I don't, okay, I don't know. I don't know if this is the, the, the best one, but I, I will say that, um, it, but it's a good one. I'll put it that way. Um, really, really trying to understand um, critical thinking. Mm-hmm. And, and people say this all the time. Yeah, you got you to know how to think and you got to understand the product. No, it's important because it's the mechanism. It's, it's one of the primary mechanisms 
that we use to arrive at truth. Mm-hmm. And so in, in every situation, if, if you've disciplined yourself, I, I think for, and again, I'm a Christian, so I'll just be blunt with you. Um, I, I am trying to organize my thinking in line with what Christ would have me think in any given situation. Um, and critical thought is a part of that because he created it, right? Um, but, but understanding that because with, without it, you will find yourself being driven by emotion. So much of the advice we get from movies is absolute garbage. Follow your heart. No, no, don't follow your heart. Seek truth, pursue truth. And there's certain mechanisms that you have to establish in order to do that. And one of them is proper critical thinking within what Romans talks about is renewing your mind. But um, so that's the one that I, I think has been kind of the most formative for, for me that I can think of off the top of my head. I always get nervous when somebody says so what's good. the most, like, because yeah. I, I know the call is going to end. I'm going to think of something else. I'm like, oh, I should have said that. Oh, that would have been better. That no, was really important. So, <laughs> man, I mean, so true. And, it, and you know, today, and, and Park, I don't want, I'm not, I don't want to usurp because if you had a follow-up on this, I want you to go ahead, sir. No, I'm good. I was just going to say thank you. Okay. No, thank you. Sorry, I didn't mean to jump in. I just, I got and, and, by, and by the way, by the way, Matt, I'm not in a rush, so and I understand you guys have a timeline, and I'll follow that. But don't please understand I don't have to like be off. Oh, you're awesome, man! Thank you, thank you for that. Yeah, no, I, um, you know, I just on the on the the critical thinking piece of that, I love the way that you talk about aligning it with that core identity and the core values of of who you are. Because we, what we talk to these guys about too is the reason we bring on good men who are also good at being men. And, you know, and you kind of talked about that with the guy you were talking about, who was very bold with his faith, right? He was part of it is he was a good man, but he was also good at being a man. And so that holds more weight, right? When you respect the individual as a man too, um, it just, it holds more weight. There's not the same things being a good man and good at being a man. And when you can be both, um, there's just that extra level there. And so, so, uh, but, but part of that, when we're talking about critical thinking and aligning yourself with the right people, we're bringing these great guys in front of you guys because we want you to see those patterns. We want you to see the patterns of success so that you go back and you align your habits of discipline, and your habits of, of taking action and your thought around, okay, well, what are these patterns that I'm recognizing that these good people are doing? How would they think about this? How would they act in this situation? You allow that to be there. And then simultaneously, you also take a look at those ideas and you just be willing to beat those up a little bit too, until you get to, you know, the word that Mr. Freitas keeps using is truth, right? You, you keep beating those ideas up until you go, okay, I think this is as close to the truth as I can get right now, as far as I can see it. And until I see better evidence presented around there, I'm going to operate from that standpoint, right? And I'll tell you what, if you allow yourself to do that, and that's, gosh, man, we call it critical thinking. Uh, even just thinking, guys, you're way ahead of the pack. This, the yeah. 99% of people aren't even doing that. They're just reacting. You know, even that, man, you are going to be set so far apart from your peers. It's what is going to allow you guys to continue to lead in the way you guys are. Um, can, so, can I say one one, I one other thing on there just to just to kind of set it up too? It's um, because I, I think what Matt said is spot on. I'd say a lot of people are being driven by emotions. Now I, I want to clarify something. Emotions aren't bad. Right. But emotions are an invitation to thought. Mm. Because if you have a visceral emotional reaction to something, there, there's a reason for that. The question is, is what is the reason why and getting to the bottom of what the problem is so that you can effectively address it. 
the problem that so many people have right now is when they get they have a visceral reaction to something oh that's an injustice and then they go and they 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 act and what sort of action do they want they want government action or they want rules or they want laws or they want restrictions or they want funding or they want to and you're looking at go, do you even understand the problem you're trying to address before you throw a whole bunch of authority and force and coercion at it? Mm-hmm. And the, if the answer is no, then what that tells me is you weren't trying to relieve the suffering you observed. You were trying to relieve your angst that you felt about the suffering. You wanted to, you wanted to do something so you could feel better about yourself, not so you could alleviate the suffering of another human being. So that emotional reaction is, is, can be a good thing, provided you see it as an invitation to thought and genuine understanding so you can act correctly, not just act to make yourself feel better about it. You have now taken the step to becoming a great leader of tomorrow. Join the Apogee program by visiting www.apogeestrong.com. For inquiries, contact us, 916-728-0606 or email matt at apogeestrong.com. Thank you for listening to Essential 11, Shaping Leaders Among Leaders. Stay tuned for more episodes.